Welcome to Soul Sciences, where inner exploration meets outer experiences. I'm your host, Charlene, inviting you to listen in, subscribe, and learn more about the place, the edge where inner soul meets outer science. Thanks for joining this episode of Soul Sciences. Hello, listeners. I'm here today with David Brazier, all the way from France. Hello, David. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here with us. Well, it's very nice to be here. David, where in France are you located? Well, we're right in the exact center of France. Uh, the little monument that says, this is the center of France, is about 20 kilometers away. That sounds wonderful. Look, Sorry? So in the uh, in what you think of as the upper Loire, the Loire is the uh, one of the biggest rivers in France, and uh, we're in the upper Loire. It's a very rural sort of area, miles from anywhere, very tranquil. And what we do when you say we, what do you have in mind about the we who live there? Well, most of, I have a um, what you might call a hermitage here. It's it's a little. Um, very primitive farm building with some land, and uh, I'm based here, and I'm here most of the time at the moment. But usually, there's more people show up. Uh, people come and stay. People come and um, spend time here, either on retreat or just helping out or as volunteers. This, if you live in the country, there's always plenty to do. <laughs> And what inspired you to create, as you call it, a hermitage? Well, we have the... Um, this building was acquired some 20, more than 20 years ago, uh, primarily for us to do summer programs. And at that time, most of our activity was in Britain. And uh, we'd come out here in the summer, and it was a very nice venue for, for summer events. But in the last few years, I've spent more and more time here, and now it's become my permanent base. And so it, it, originally it was just a facility, but gradually it's becoming a home. And what is it that you do when you're not at what you... What is your name, first of all, for the Hermitage? What do you call this place? Uh, we call it Eleusis. The, the French name is La Ville au Roi. The town of the king. Uh, so there must be some uh, some old history to that. It probably goes back to medieval times. Uh, but we call it Eleusis because that is a kind of reference to the Eleusian or Eleusian uh, mysteries in France, the mystery religions. So we, we have a, a variety of things go on here, some Buddhist uh, and some uh, more general spirituality things happen here. General spirituality things that maybe come from the mystery schools? Well, yesterday we had a, a big fire for Aphrodite. Uh, the, the land here is divided up into sections, so each part of the land is dedicated to a different um, god or goddess. 
and uh, we have ceremonies honoring the different uh, divine influences in the land. This means that just taking a walk through the land, you're having a kind of um, archetypal experience. You, you relate to different uh, energies, different aspects of life, uh, at the same time as becoming closely associated with the earth, the, the wildlife, the plants. Uh, it's it's a very deepening experience just to be here. It's a very tranquil spot, and most people find it a very sort of magical atmosphere here. So at the center of it is is our Buddhistic uh, principles, our Buddhist meditations, rituals, and so on. But we also honor the traditional gods and goddesses uh, and the connection with the earth, that kind of thing. I love the thought of such a welcoming embrace to all comers on the levels of divinity and all comers, presumably, at the human and animal level as well. It sounds to me like a very, very powerful refuge place. It, it certainly is that. And we, we have an associated um, networking website, and I, I noticed the other day that we've got, uh, although there's, there's, I think there's 110 members on the site, and amongst those, there are people who are serious practitioners in more than 10 different schools of Buddhism oh and several different, several different other religious or spiritual persuasions. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're quite a, um, what can you say, inclusive, inclusive uh, community. Yes, it seems to be quite in keeping with our times to be able to drop barriers and embrace. I think the best of our times encourages this. I think, I think that's right, yes. It, it's um, One of the great advantages of the modern age is our ease of communication and our access to so many different things. Uh, you, you have the whole spirituality of the world uh, available to you virtually. And uh, I think it's very important to celebrate that. Uh, Dividing off and saying, well, we just do this, or we only do our form of practice, and we have nothing to do with anything else, um, is, is it's not the way to go. <laughs> uh, I agree totally. <laughs> I, I think sometimes there's a place for a person to concentrate for a while and, and, and deepen themselves in one practice. That's valuable. But having it as a general attitude, uh, it's not what the world needs. So what the world needs is opening up to one another and a sharing, and a mutual understanding, empathy, love, communication, connection. These are the really important things. And that means diversity. It means opening ourselves up to many different um, dimensions of our being, uh, not just to one. It is, so spirituality to me is about opening up, about increasing, expanding, not about narrowing down. Clearly, you're not in the category of people who look for a right and wrong answer to questions. Clearly. <laughs> no, I wasn't looking for the right answer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for the right answer, but I accept that, you know, we're limited human beings. And um, there probably is a, a right out there, but I'm not going to master it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> My claim on being God is rather slender. You know? 
that's a brilliant way of putting it, David. I love the humor and I love the humility. I really do. I honor it deeply in you. It's a tremendous, uh, you're a tremendous role model for so many people. And you really do walk the walk. My experience with you has been ever that you offer love, generosity, respect, uh, helpfulness, kindness to everyone and certainly at any moment that I've connected with you. So bravo, walking the walk. Well, that's nice of you to say so. And it, it's it's really just an interest, you know. I, I'm deeply interested. Uh, somebody comes along with a new idea or a different way of seeing things. Um, well, fascinating. Tell me more. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of a terminal enthusiasm for all things that are interesting. <laughs> well, all things human, you know, and and and. Well, and not just human, because here we're very much in connection with nature and the animals and birds and so on. Um, but certainly all things human. It, it's, um, I, I suppose, putting it in slightly more spiritual language, I'd say, you know, the, the, the light's reflected in everybody. And, and in each way, it's re each person is going to be reflected in a different way. Uh, you're going to get a different angle, uh, a different depth, a different color. Um, this is fascinating, fascinating. And uh, so bringing people together and having them listen to one another, one of, I would say one of our major spiritual practices really is just coming together and listening to one another. Uh, when, you, when you do that, something very special happens between people. Uh, often in those kind of uh, gatherings or listening circles, it's like a sort of magic happens. We like we've become collectively we've become some sort of receptor for the, the spiritual light, if you like, and uh, we go beyond what any of us could do individually. And and your your feeling for life, for people, for for being alive, it deepens. And uh, I've sat in so many hundreds of these circles now, and it's it's always enriching. What a beautiful thought. So this is one of the events that you host at Eleusis, is a kind of listening circle. Is this one of the components? Say, for example, if you had a week and you called people together, is that how you operate? Oh, yes. Gatherings, listening, very important. But also studying the traditional wisdom, studying texts, um, learning from one another, learning from the great masters of the past. Uh, quite a bit of my time is delving into that material, much of which is Buddhist, but not just Buddhist, uh, from a whole variety of spiritual traditions. So I think it's important to have a kind of balance of life, uh, so a certain amount of study, a certain amount of practice, meditation, contemplation, a certain amount of celebratory ritual, chanting, uh, ceremonial, and so on. Um, and a certain amount of work. Uh, get out there and, and roll up your sleeves and get in the air and get some air in your lungs and some blood rushing through your veins and chop down some trees or saw up some wood or build something or do something useful in that sense. Often yes. outdoors. A lot of the life here is outdoors. And uh, that puts us very much in touch with nature uh, in a way that I think m many, many modern people are deprived of, uh, living, in, living in a concrete environment, living in uh, cities and so on, you're kind of cut off. You're cut off from the stars. You're cut off from the, the phases of the moon. You're, you're cut off from the earth. 
uh, in a way that here, uh, well, you can't avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> it's ever present everywhere. <laughs> the wind blows, the rain falls, the sun comes out. Um, you know, that today, earlier today, I was over in one of the far fields doing some something, and um, suddenly it started to pelt down with rain. And um, I just had to find a bit of shelter in some of the some of the bushes for a while and just stood there watching it. And, you know, it's a kind of miracle, just watching nature doing its thing. And uh, like this, it's like a little, sort of mini tornado rushes through the place and all the trees bend and, and there's a tremendous gale of wind and then it's gone, you know, gone, gone. And suddenly the sun comes out again. Uh, this is this is miraculous. Uh, this is uh, something that brings you to life in a way that um, you know typical city life just can't do. I couldn't agree more. I live very close to Toronto, which has become at the lake shore a wall of condo buildings. And yes. I, I always feel so sorry for the people. I think of them as trapped in those condos. I don't think they necessarily see themselves that way, but you may go weeks without ever putting your feet on the ground. You may go well, weeks. Cities can be great places. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I love great cities. I, I love London and Paris and so on, but I wouldn't want to be stuck there all the time. <laughs> exactly. I think your point is a really good one. There is something so incredibly healing about being in nature at a deep level, a very deep level in ourselves. It brings us into a place of communion and union that then yeah. I think promotes a sense of openness to others. But tell our listeners just for a moment, if you would please, about your main practice. It's Japanese Buddhism, is that correct? Or have I, have, have I got that wrong? My main practice is Pure Land Buddhism. So this is a... Um, an invocatory uh, practice, invoking the Buddhas, invoking the blessing of the Buddhas. Um, so you say in practical terms, a lot of it's chanting. Uh, often uh, walking and chanting, sometimes sitting and chanting. Uh, the, the, the main form of chanting is called Nembutsu. Uh, literally, this means having the Buddha in mind. Hmm. See, nem, nem means uh, an impulse of mind. Actually, nem is, is, is the Japanese translation of mindfulness. I mean, there's a, there's a great vogue for mindfulness at the moment. Uh, but um, here we mean mindfulness in a somewhat different sense, more, ra rather more in the, the traditional English sense of the word mindfulness. Mindfulness, when my mother said it, <clears throat> was not about here and now awareness. It was about keeping something in mind, keeping something in your heart, keeping something with you that would stand you in good stead. So Nembutsu, keeping the Buddha in mind, means keeping the Buddha in your heart, keeping the Buddha with you that will be a friend, will be a strength, will be uh, something that will stand you in good stead, something that will get you through difficulties. Uh, sad things happen, happy things happen. The Buddha's there with you. This is a stabilizing influence uh, and gives you a, gives a depth to your life. Of course, different people might conceptualize the Buddha in different ways. Different people might have different experiences from doing the practice. Well, it's not looking for a kind of orthodoxy in that sense. You know, a lot of spiritual practices seem to be designed to get you into a particular predefined state. 
Uh, that's not really what this approach is about. It's more like you do the practice, you see what happens. Each day something different may happen. You may have a different feeling, a different mood, a different emotion, a different insight. That's the dynamic of the spiritual life. The spiritual life goes on. It does, it's not static like that. So, yes, Nembutsu, our main practice, keeping the Buddha in mind, particularly by saying the Buddha's name, invoking, uh, as we say, calling on the Buddha. And of course, it's very, very, this, this practice of um, calling the name, whatever the name may be, is, is very ancient and belongs not just to one religion, but to many, many religions have this kind of, kind of practice. Uh, so we, we talked earlier about um, the, the, the pagan deities and the nature spirits and so on. All those sorts of religions, too, would use calling the name as, as a central practice. Thank you so much. And this is absolutely fascinating, David. I truly mean that, to hear you so clearly talking about what is one of the stumbling blocks, I believe, for many, many people interested in Eastern practices, which is this belief that there's a particular solid state or a permanent way to do things, rather than, as you're suggesting, an open flow just see, just an investigative, calm acceptance of what's arising. You sound to me, David, a bit like a nature mystic. Is that an appropriate term, do you think? <laughs> well, mystic might, um, might have various claims in it that I'd have a hard time living up to. But <laughs> <laughs> certainly I'm out here in nature, and um, I do find it um, a deep and rewarding mystery in the, um, the old-fashioned sense of that word, mystery, uh, something that's um, kind of deep and esoteric and inspiring. Uh, the, one, one has a sense that one is always learning, and, and, and a lot of that learning is not kind of cognitive. It, it's, it's like through the, through the skin, uh, through being there in the, in the elements, in, in direct contact with, with life. With, with the uh, at this time of year, with with uh, the preparation for spring, as it were, you, you you go out there on the earth, and all the plants are just getting ready for spring. You 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 can see all the little signs of um, buds and and growth, and and a few flowers already there, but but not many yet. But there's a lot coming. That's a lovely thing to be reminded of for us in Eastern Canada today, David, because it's March 2nd as we record this, although we'll air it in April or May, but right now we're walked under two feet of snow that arrived last night. <laughs> so I love, I love yeah, being reminded. Yeah, we just get a scattering of snow. We, 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 don't, we never get two foot. <laughs> oh, good for you. It sounds like a delightful place. So, David, is this, this practice, the... Amida Pure Land practice, did I say that correctly? Yes. The Amida Pure Land practice, is that out of the Amitabha practices? Yes, yes. The, the, the sense in, in Mahayana Buddhism is of many Buddhas. And uh, there are, each Buddha represents a different dimension, if you like, of, of spirituality or of liberation or of the enlightened life. So, so some represent, so... Quan Chi Yin represents compassion, for instance. Many people are very devoted to the idea of Quan Chi Yin um, or Avalokiteshvara uh, as compassion. 
um, and, and different, or Manjushri, wisdom, for instance. Um, so many, many Buddhas who represent different aspects of the spiritual life. And uh, Amitabha uh, really represents complete acceptance. Oh. So, so the, the, the kind of, the reason that Amitabha became a favorite Buddha in the Far East was the sense that, well, all these other Buddhas, they expect something of you, whereas Amitabha are like, <laughs> Amitabha like accept you just as you are. <laughs> no, no matter how stupid, evil, or ignorant you are, Amitabha will still accept you. So, <laughs> so, so this was the sort of basis of, of a, a cult of Amitabha. Uh, which grew up in in Asian Buddhism, but uh, it's it's a very pluralistic sort of vision. Uh, the fact that you honor one Buddha doesn't mean that you therefore um, reject other Buddhas or anything like that. Um, honoring one Buddha is honoring all Buddhas. And so it, it's it, in that sense, it's like a way in. It's a doorway. It's a gateway into uh, into the garden. You could go in through many other gateways as well. <clears throat> what a beautiful, beautiful, profound teaching. Thank you. I've spent many hours learning about various of the Buddhist practices, the iconography, as it were, the and practice very diligently. But I don't believe I've ever heard it said quite so succinctly and so with such love on the ordinary level. Amitabha accepts us. Amitabha can then become the embrace that one needs when life as it does can become very dark for people. David, what is your take on the level of depression and anxiety that's happening on the planet right now? Not to bring us all down, but I think we need to let our listeners know a little bit about how that jives with what your vision is. Well, I, I, I think people are getting detached from life, aren't they? <laughs> Um, in, in, in some ways, you know, my, my Zen teacher, where I studied Zen for many, many years, and she used to say, um, the reason people don't get enlightened is they're too comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, like, modern life treats you like you need a cocoon around you. Yes. Um, everything's got to be comfortable. Um, if something gets uncomfortable, then something's gone wrong. Yes. And it must be fixed. And there must be a gadget <laughs> for fixing it. <laughs> and if not a gadget, a silver bullet. <laughs> but, but, but this kind of mentality, in a way, cuts us off from reality. Yes. Uh, it, it's a sort of alienating thing. So I, I think that's one factor. I, I think um, uh, probably, you know, an, a, another factor is the kind of materialism or secularism or um, kind of too much rationality in a way, too much rationality, uh, which, which becomes a, a matter of measuring everything. You know, rational comes from ratio, it comes from measuring. And uh, the, 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 the whole sort of modern way of doing things, partly it's because science has been so successful in some ways. So science, science is fantastic, wonderful, has produced amazing things. But some people tend, try to turn it into a sort of neo-religion. 
And uh, this doesn't really work. I mean, it's not what it was designed to be. So, uh, so I think this is the second thing, is, is that we have a way of thinking that's kind of over-rational, that fails to appreciate creativity, beauty, naturalness, the flow of life, and so on. And, and this is uh, exacerbated by our way of life, the fact that we do live in artificial environments, uh, you, you're kind of cut off from the meaning of your work, from the meaning of what you do. There, there's a um, sociologist, Zimmel, who first pointed this out. That you know, I, I traveled a lot. When I was in Vietnam, um, if a village wanted a school building, uh, they'd have a village meeting. A week later, the guys would be out in the forest cutting bamboo, and then they'd be building the schoolhouse. Now, if you want a school, a new school in Chicago, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, there's no bamboo except what grows in the town council. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that, you know. You no. just can't do that. No. And and the people who do, who are involved in building a school spend most of their time sitting in a tower block office, moving pieces of paper from the in tray to the out tray, or answering emails. Yes. They never actually see the school. They never see the children. They're not connected with. Yes what their life's actually about. Yes. Now, one of the things that happens here at um, La Vila Elusis is that you are immediately connected with life. Like, it gets cold. If it's cold, you have to get warm. To get warm, you need to burn the wood-burning stove. To make the wood-burning stove burn, you've got to go out in the forest and cut some wood. <laughs> <laughs> Very direct. So, so you see the whole process, you know, you yes. see the plants growing, you cut them, you bring it in, yes. you saw it up, you see it burn, you feel warm. Right. It's, so, so, like, you see the whole process. Yes. Now, now most people nowadays, they, they're cut off from that process. They yes. push buttons, uh, they count numbers, uh, they do things rationally, but it's reductionistic. It detaches them from real life. Yes. That's depressing. Yes. Uh, that takes away any kind of connection with your real energy. Uh, they just sit and watch a screen. They watch television. And, of course, most of what's on television is pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, wars <laughs> in faraway places. Yes. So, um, and that's, that, that disconnects you as well. You know, you're seeing people getting killed. You're seeing horrible things happen sometimes. But, but you're not involved in it, really. It's, it's, yes. it's like a video game. Yes. That's also depressing. Yes. Um, all these things cut us off from the reality of life. So, so I, I think spirituality, practice, what it's really about is not attaining this, that, or the other state. It's about coming alive. Uh, it's that about is coming back to life. Beautiful. Beautifully said, and I couldn't agree more. Although I've never been able to put it in such great succinct terms, elegant terms. Real spirituality is about coming back to life and coming into life uh, with renewed vitality, with renewed vigor. I totally believe that. David, you weren't born a Buddhist. Can you give us a little capsule about how you encountered Buddhism in your life and what you were raised as and how your life came into being before you became the center of a community and a world traveler? and all of the very many things that you are. 
Well, I guess I was brought up on poetry. My, my mother was a great lover of poetry. Um, and um, and I, I knew I could always um, get round her, you know, if, by learning another poem. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so I had that sort of bred into me, as it were. And um, also, as a family, we traveled. I've always been traveling. Even as a child, we traveled. Um, so much of my childhood, I was pretty isolated. Uh, not many other English-speaking children. Um, also, I'm an only child, so I had no brothers and sisters. <coughs> and we were often far from home, as it were. So I spent a lot of time on my own. And uh, as a child, I had a number of um, spiritual experiences. Uh, in, in, in a sense, looking back on it, I can say I taught myself to meditate. But I, I'd never heard that word or didn't know anything about any of that at that time. But in practice, sitting there in the garden wondering how my life was different from the life of that rock over there, um, was a, was a spiritual contemplation. And uh, through these, um, these times, uh, I had various experiences, um, which in a way set me on some sort of spiritual quest. So that as I started to grow up, um, I was always down the library reading every book about travel or spirituality or... <laughs> philosophy oh, or I could lay my hands up. Yes. I, I was in a sort of really passionate search for meaning, for understanding, for the experiences that brought people alive. Yes. And um, that meant, of course, also that I was alert to opportunities of that kind. So, so when I got to be 20-ish, um, I started meeting people uh, who were involved in these things. And um, it just happened, um, you can work out the dates of my life and so on, but it just happened that I reached that formative age, early 20s, when the Beatles discovered the Maharishi. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, overnight, instead of this being an, an esoteric, strange eccentricity, um, everybody was doing it. Uh, every newspaper, every magazine, they were just full of meditation, spirituality, Eastern gurus, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, you name it. Um, and I happened to be in Cambridge. And Cambridge, of course, is a famous university city that has quite a draw. And it had a Buddhist society. <clears throat> And that Buddhist society, because it was Cambridge, could invite any Buddhist teacher who was visiting Britain to come and lecture, and they would say yes. Uh, so, so we were, we had this tremendous wow. luxury of every week a new Buddhist teacher from a, another dimension of Buddhism. Incredible. And some who came regularly. So, for instance, every month we had Chogyam Trungpa. Ah. Chogya Trungpa was amazing. So I I would sit at the feet of Chogyam Trungpa every month. 
Oh, um, astonishing. We had Nai Boonman, who was a leading teacher of Samatha meditation, gave weekly classes. Uh, we had Carmen Blacker, who was a leading academic scholar who'd been to Japan and studied Japanese shamanism uh, in its connection with, with Buddhism. Resident in Cambridge. Aunt's <laughs> cousin, who was probably the one of the leading Theravada Buddhist teachers in Britain at the time. Um, so we were spoiled stupid, and then and, you know, every week a new lecture from somebody or other. What um, blessings! And then, and then towards the end of this time, um, I was notified that there was. Um, a Zen teacher, Kenneth Roshi, uh, coming to visit Britain, mm -hmm. and she would be holding retreats. So, well, I went along <laughs> and um, did this two-week-long session uh, with this teacher who just returned from Japan, who was in the sort of full flush of do-it-all-the-Japanese-way, including whacking you with the cure sack. And <laughs> <laughs> And all that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a most fantastic, life-changing experience. I, mean, I don't think anybody who went on that retreat was the same again afterwards. Um, I, I met quite a number of them later on in life, and they'd all been changed. We'd all been changed by, by that experience. And, and so and then I went on from there. David, thank you so much. I truly am sorry to have to say we've come to the end of our program. Will you come back and speak to our listeners again sometime with your fascinating oh, stories? I'm very happy. Yes, you, you, you pick a topic and we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Bye for now. That's it. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Join us again soon. And in the meantime, remember, be kind to each other. For more soul sciences, go to www.soulsciences.net or email me at charlenej at rogers.com. Many thanks to Kevin McLeod for that great intro and extra music called Carefree. Bye for now.